Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Well, that is Philippians 4, verse 8. I am your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining us today for the fourth bonus episode in our series on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, adverse childhood experiences, and complex trauma with our special guest, Dr. Jared Brown. This series covers vital topics for all of us foster, adoptive, and kinship caregivers, and we have been learning so much invaluable information. I recommend you take some notes during these episodes. I certainly have been, and my notebook is nearly full after the first three episodes in the series. If you don't have a notebook or something to take notes on handy, you can pause uh, and go search one out, grab one, and be ready to listen. Uh, It's the great thing about podcasts, right? They're not live, so that you can pause it, go get a notebook, and then hit play again, or just listen through this time and then sit down again later on with a notebook, listen again, uh, and and I'm sure that you'll grab out uh, some some points you maybe missed the first time around. I know I have to go back and re-listen myself because just doing the interview, I'm scrambling to take notes, but I also have to pay attention to be asking the questions and all of that. So um, it's super beneficial to listen a second time, really, if you can fit that in. Uh, Our regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop into your inbox on Mondays, but this series with Dr. Brown are bonus episodes that will drop on Fridays. If you're not yet a subscriber to this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate it if you would take a moment and subscribe. And if you listen on Apple, uh, go ahead and leave a review. It's super simple to do, but it makes a huge impact. When listeners subscribe and leave reviews, it signals to the algorithm that this show is relevant and important, and we want all adoptive, foster, and kinship caregivers to find this show a vital resource for their parenting journey. I know it's a resource that I wish I had way back over 22 years ago when I began this journey, Um, so I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe. Also, if you do find this uh, podcast to be an encouragement, let us know if you have a comment or a question, if there's a question you'd like me to ask Dr. Brown, or if there's a, a guest you'd like me to interview in the future, maybe you would like to share your adoption, foster care, or kinship journey story with us. Uh, reach out to me by email directly. You can reach me at sandraflackjfo at gmail.com or through our nonprofit website, which is justicefororphansny.org. Now to our guest. Jared Brown 
PhD, uh, is an assistant professor for Concordia University, St. Paul, Minnesota. Jared has also been employed with Pathways Counseling Center in St. Paul, Minnesota for the past 17 years. Pathways provides programs and services benefiting individuals impacted by mental illness and addictions. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and the editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Jared has completed four separate master's degree programs and holds graduation certificates in autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries. Jared is also a certified youth fire setting prevention and intervention specialist, an anger resolution therapist, and a thinking for a change facilitator, a fetal alcohol spectrum disorders trainer, an autism specialist, and a mental health interactive medicine provider. Goodness gracious, very busy man. Uh, and he's here to share from his wealth of experience and knowledge. Please welcome Dr. Jared Brown. Hey, Jared. Hey, Sandra. Thank you again for having me back. I think we're in part three, if my memory serves me correctly. I think this is four. Is it really? Already? It is four. Holy yeah, Lord. we're having okay. such a good we're time. Time is, time is moving along fast. So, Yeah, yeah. We did prenatal trauma. We did adverse childhood experiences. We did complex trauma. And then now where that brings us to today, right. um, which I'm, I'm super excited to, to present this trauma series to our listeners who, like me, primarily are foster and adoptive parents. Um, so I know firsthand that we need to cover these topics. We need to be informed. So I appreciate you bringing your expertise and experience to the table. Um, and today I really want to dive into this topic that parents might not realize actually has a huge negative impact on our kids with trauma histories, screen time, uh, I know I'm parenting two teenage boys, both with prenatal trauma, FASD, and complex trauma. And while my husband and I thought we were limiting screen time and kind of restricting places they could go on the web, you know, they, they don't have video games in their bedrooms. They, they do have devices. My 18-year-old has a cell phone and some social media. Our 16-year-old only has an iPad. Uh, we have restrictions on there but still discovered not as much protection as we thought we had set up. Um, so we had to do what I, you know, what I started calling a digital detox. Now we have major restrictions and protections in place beyond what we had before, which led to, I'm noticing, a, you know, with, with the drastic decrease in the screen time that they're having now, I'm noticing an improvement in their mood and in their behavior. Um, Honestly, I had no idea how damaging screen time is for our kids. So, Jerry, I'm sure you can explain the scientific reasons behind this. So what what does screen time do to our kids, especially our kids, to all kids, but especially our kids who've had trauma and prenatal exposure and brain differences. You bet. So there, there are so many studies coming out in recent years about the harmful effects of screen time 
on children and adults. And the last few years with COVID, it's really amplified a lot of these things because people now are, some are still at home more. And we've really seen a huge increase in the amount of time people are looking at their screen or their gadgets. And some researchers are really calling this really like a public health issue. Other public health issues, obesity, sleep issues, mental health challenges, they're really putting screen time up there too. And hopefully your audience walks away today realizing why that's the case. When we think of like screen time misuse, I try to look at it through like a behavioral health lens. And if you're not familiar with that term, like behavioral health, just, just think of like our overall health and well-being as it's related to our emotions, our behaviors, our biology, the mental health components of things. And when we look at that lens of behavioral health, think of things like stress, depression, anxiety, relationship problems, maybe it's grief and loss issues, someone's dealing maybe with a substance use or an addictive disorder, isolation. When we look at behavioral health issues, a lot of those things I mentioned can be exacerbated by screen time issues. Those issues can exacerbate screen time in and of itself, so they kind of work hand in hand. But if we were to kind of zoom back and just look at online media habits in general or whatever you want to call it, surfing habits, going on the internet. Obviously, how many hours a day is someone looking at the screen, their computer or their tablet or their iPhone? How often are they going to like video streaming services and, and watching movies or playing games or going online and shopping? Even auction websites, got to take that into account. Online gaming social media, chatting with friends, and unfortunately, online pornography use as well has shown to continue to increase in this era of COVID-19. Now, there's different types of screen time for people to be aware of. It's not all bad. I mean, we're all on the screen. We, we can do some wonderful things with it. Screen time, that's how I do my work. And if it wasn't for the internet, I, I could not do what I do, especially when COVID, in the heart of COVID. So screen time can be used for educational purposes. So again, if you go to college, if you go to school, maybe you're taking some sort of class or training program or certification, but there's active types of screen time where let's say your child's online and they're actively like interacting with other people online doing something interactive maybe it's like a playstation game or where they're playing with other people that's kind of an active form there's passive forms of screen time too where you just sit there and you watch tv you watch a movie or listen to music videos something like that so educational passive and active are some of the way they kind of break it up in the research literature so a lot of pros with this i'm never i don't want to put down screen time but Lots of pros with this too. For some, it's a way to connect with people. If someone's isolated and they live in a rural area and maybe they don't live anywhere near family, it's a way in which for people to connect and, and feel more connected to their loved ones. I've done a lot of degrees online. I, we learn, we, we take school, we, we listen to podcasts like this, we watch educational videos. But... Today, we're talking about the negatives. So 
lots of negatives to take into account. When we think of screen time, maybe let's, if it's okay, Sandra, we'll start with internet addiction. There's a whole line of research literature that just talks about internet addiction. For your audience, if you wanna take your knowledge to a deeper level, just Google search internet addiction, go to Google Scholar. There's a lot of terms that fall under the umbrella of internet addiction. Misuse of internet has been used in this research. Internet dependence, maladaptive internet use, pathological internet use, problematic internet use, whatever term you use, all of those should bring up some different types of articles and resources you might want to take a look at. A lot of different things would fall under the umbrella of internet addiction. So someone's just addicted to going on their computer and they have computer addiction. Maybe they're dealing with a cyber sexual addiction. Maybe there is some sort of information overload going on or net compulsion is another term that's sometimes used in this research literature. But if someone truly has like an internet addiction, think of, I mean, it's very similar to the same kind of behavioral reactions you would have from drugs or alcohol, where over time that person might need more and more time on the internet to kind of get that same effect. Are you someone or your child where if you don't have the internet for an extended period of time, do you almost feel like you're going through like withdrawal symptoms where you're starting to get a little more edgy or anxious or you feel more tense inside where you just have that urge, I got to go online, I got to check my email. Those are some things to take into account. And what kind of negative like side effects, consequences is the person dealing with as a result of their internet use? Is it causing them to start engaging in lying behaviors where they're starting to hide things? Is it causing them to not sleep anymore? Is it causing family conflict? Daytime fatigue? Is the person selecting the internet now over going to school or wanting to be in sports or they just isolate? They don't have any interest in being around people anymore. Their only interest seems to be going online. See it all the time. I should mention Sandra, I do a lot of consulting and training for various groups all over the country. And this is about the number one issue now that people email me about is related to internet addiction, screen time misuse, and my child's dealing with this issue, or can you educate our group home about this, or our organization? We're just seeing this come up more and more and more. Some risk factors you wanna be aware of when we think of what may place someone at greater risk of kind of starting to engage in problematic internet use. Looking to the school, is there bullying and teasing going on in school? Or do they have a hard time making friends so they feel very socially isolated and alone? Looking at the family structure, is there some dysfunctional parenting going on? We'll talk today about really being aware of how we model our own internet use to children. Is there parent-child relationship conflict issues going on? That's a potential risk factor. Marital conflict, a child in a home where there's a lot of conflict with the parents. Maybe there's a divorce going on. Maybe the child's growing up in a home where there's limited parental monitoring, where that child is allowed to do whatever they want, watch whatever they want, 
have a TV in their bedroom. We'll talk about why that is a terrible idea to have a TV in a kid's bedroom. Insecure attachment patterns have been linked to an increase in proneness to possible internet addiction. So if someone's truly dealing with internet addiction, Sandra, oftentimes it, that obviously is not the only thing going on. There's usually a lot of comorbidities. And if we dig deep into this literature, it is not uncommon for that child to look like they have ADHD or be diagnosed with ADHD in some cases. Higher levels of alexithymia have been reported. Alexithymia is basically emotional blindness where somebody has a real difficult time making sense of emotions, understanding them, processing them, labeling them. It's also been linked to sleep deprivation and obesity problems, and it can absolutely erode one's self-control, and it has a huge impact on self-esteem. Those are just a few things. I'll stop for a minute, Sandra. Any thoughts you have on that? Yeah, I'm here uh, ferociously taking notes. <laughs> um, and just so many of the things that you're you're listing off, not only, and, and, and really this is, this affects every every person really, and, and we're talking about our kids, um, you know, every, every kid, you know, whether they're neurotypical or like our kids have experienced trauma, um, every kid is prone to having these problems and adults. I know adults and I can, I can, I can look back in the early, you know, some of my kids are in their thirties now. So, you know, there were, wasn't as much access, you know, when they were younger, it just kind of is increasingly, been, you know, a thing where there's way more uh, social media platforms, way more, more uh, technology like this being used screen time in schools and things like that. Um, but I do remember, you know, my oldest adopted child, um, when, when she got a device, it was she was lost in that device. Uh, and some of the things that were look, you know, you're talking about now, I can kind of look back and think, wow, there could have been addiction there um, because also it's a way to avoid really dealing with your problems because you can kind of lose yourself in the internet and, and that world and what's going on, whether you're gaming or on social media or or whatever it is, it's definitely uh, our, our kids with trauma are definitely, I think, more prone to this. And um, I recently read a book called Digital Detox by Molly DeFrank. Uh, and in it, she reports that studies find that children are susceptible to health, behavioral, cognitive, and developmental problems relating to certain types of digital media. And she, she kind of has this long list, and I just pulled out a few because these sound very familiar to me. Um, so they include delayed language development, difficulty processing emotions, reduced memory capacity, depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, ADHD diagnosis, which you've already mentioned, lower executive function, aggressive behaviors, impulsivity, irritability, reduced social skills, emotional regulation problems. And that's just, you know, some of what was on her list. And I was shocked because as I read that list, I kept thinking, these are some of the primary characteristics of prenatal exposure to alcohol, right? That's, that's, those are primary characteristics. So families like mine who are already dealing with 
FASD, you know, the, these symptoms because of FASD, because of prenatal trauma, complex trauma. Um, you mentioned some of them. Screen time actually exacerbates these behaviors. Uh, so that's what you're basically telling us. So these are the behaviors. These are the things that are exacerbated. Um, so as parents seeing these behaviors, screen time really just makes it all worse, does it not? Yeah, I'd say it's an amplifier. I really see excessive screen time use as a threat to emotional, behavioral, social, physical health. Wait, we really want, we want to, I think, be aware of personality traits that may place a child at greater risk for internet related problems as well. So if a child has a tendency to really struggle with loneliness or extreme shyness or low, low levels of self-esteem or really lack control in their emotions and behaviors, those personality traits have been linked to an increase in internet addiction issues. We want to be, I would recommend your audience too, to be aware of a term called bedtime procrastination. This is one reason of many, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit, but not to have allow the child to have technology in the bedroom because sometimes again, kids will select their gadgets, obviously over getting a good night's sleep and they don't have the brain capacity to kind of understand cause and effect. And if you're on your gadget all night long, you're gonna be pretty tired the next day and that can have a huge impact on your emotional and behavioral health. When And does... Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. I was just going to, it um, made me think of this because I myself, you know, there's, like you said, there are benefits to technology and screen time. I'm taking my class for facets to learn, you know, to become a facets facilitator. And it's a three hour class and it's in the evening. So from seven to 10 PM here, Eastern time, I am on a screen after having been on the screen so much during, you know, somewhat during the day for work. Uh, but for those three hours right before bedtime, because 10 o'clock is definitely my bedtime, <laughs> I'm on a screen engaged, you know, in, in, a, in a group doing this online training. But I find that as tired as I am when I am close my laptop and head to bed, it takes me quite a while to fall asleep. And I, I contribute that to being on the screen. 100%. I have that happen to me all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And couple reasons could be it's increasing cortisol levels in your body depending on what someone's looking at and you're looking at that screen and your brain is that screen that light going into your brain is tricking your brain into saying hey stay up longer so it's producing less melatonin and depending on if you're engaging in something that's stress producing anxiety producing that produces more cortisol and we don't want that at night. We have more cortisol in the morning when you wake up. At night, that cortisol can be a stimulant and it can trigger problems falling asleep and it can overactivate our sympathetic nervous system. It can have an impact on that HPA axis I spoke about a few times here and there, the hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal axis. What are people doing well online too? Are they also sipping on some coffee, a soda, eating things that aren't good for them? There's tons of evidence to support excessive screen time exposure is also linked to sedentary behaviors and 
increases in sugar and, and things that aren't good for our body. If we look at some of this research on the early impact that excessive screen time exposure has on children, it's pretty scary. If kids are glued to that screen early on in life, it can have a real negative impact on language development. It can really mimic the symptoms of ADHD in some cases. Do they have ADHD? Maybe, maybe it's just mimicking those symptoms. There's plenty of evidence too to show that this excessive amount of screen time exposure early on in a child's life may contribute to increases in behavioral problems where it looks like that child may be more oppositional or defiant or even aggressive in some cases. And again, it can have a profound impact on that child's overall social, emotional, and cognitive development. So those executive functions, which we want to promote early on in life, which are related to thinking and reasoning and problem solving. And from a neuro, like really a, a neuropsychological lens, there's some evidence too to support the fact that early and chronic exposure to screen time use among children may narrow their focus of interest early on in life where it could have a negative impact on like creativity and it really ha it could limit that child's kind of desire to want to explore or learn other things. And then if that child's really glued to those gadgets early on in life, they may not have as much opportunity to go outside and be around other kids and play with toys and just engage in imaginative play, which is so critical to emotional and social development. And then if these things never get addressed early on, a lot of times as that child enters a K through 12 setting, it can really have an impact on the way in which they learn and interact with other kids. And if, if the child has FASD or some other type of neurodevelopmental disorder, just placing that child at even a greater risk for non-success in those settings. So I do believe really being aware of this topic is a crucial component to just understanding the whole neurobiopsychosocial framework of human beings in general. Can I share a case study? Would that be helpful? Yes, please. There's a case I consulted on probably about a year, year and a half ago now. It was an individual on the autism spectrum. And some professionals reached out to me and they wanted some education advice on how to maybe tweak what they were doing. And this person dealt with profound impulse control problems, impulse control problems around their food intake. They would literally drink coffee all day long and abuse caffeine. And they had huge problems with sleep, motivational issues, rumination, dug a lot deeper. This client really just watched TV all day long, was on the internet, lived in a group home. Group home didn't have a lot of structure, so this person was just bored out of their mind, so they just looked at the screen all day long. Once they started learning about this topic, among others, they made some tweaks, and needless to say, they started seeing some of these problematic behaviors go down. I'm not saying they were cured, but they became more manageable. The person's social skills seemed to go up. They became more talkative, more engaged. They seemed to have more energy to hang in there with things and started to show more interest 
other than just being on the screen all the time. And they helped this person actually get a volunteer job and taught this person how to do some reflective journaling. And they actually helped this person get, get into martial arts, which really was just profound for this person. So those were just a few things. And I'm not saying screen time was the number one factor, but I feel like it was a huge, huge factor here that was exacerbating some of these other types of behaviors and his rumination. And we know rumination is very, very common among kids with neurodevelopmental disorders. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm listening to that story and I'm even thinking of my boys because when we took a, you know, we pivoted and we didn't completely detox and take away screens, but I went on and you can actually go in if you have an Apple, we have Apple products here. So I went into their iPhone and iPad and I could restrict the amount of time that they were allowed to spend on certain, you know, whether it's social media or certain things that they could do and screen time overall. And when we began to do that, and then we put a hard stop to any devices in their bedrooms, uh, which was a big mistake we had made thinking that, well, we had these other restrictions on there. So if they can't look at porn because they're teenage boys, then they'll be fine. Uh, but if they want to find stuff, they can find it, even if there's been some restrictions set on there. But as soon as we really put the clamps down and set some, you know, hard and fast boundaries with this, and I went into the, there, I could password it and, and set all these restrictions. They have to turn their devices into, you know, me at nine o'clock, uh, but they can't ever go in the room with them at any time. Uh, we At first, there was a lot of grumbling, which every parent would expect, right? But... They did comply, and within a couple of weeks, I started noticing things. I started noticing when screen time wasn't the default activity to just do all day, then they started wanting to do other things. So my son that is very hands-on and does like to build things and make things out of wood and do different things, he suddenly, you know, we started seeing him out in the garage tinkering again. Uh, which he didn't bother doing when he could just sit on a device all evening or afternoon. Uh, my other son that is is very isolated, he was coming out of his room more asking to play a board game, wanting to do different things. Uh, my older son who works, he was having a hard time getting up for work every morning. So I would he would set his alarm, never hear it. I'd have to wake him up and prod and get him finally to work and he'd go in a little bit late. Now that there's no screen time before bed because there's no screen time in his bedroom. He's sleeping, going to bed earlier, sleeping better. And now I don't have to wake him up for work anymore. He's, he's already up and out of the house on his own. So we've seen improvements, but I just, I think that it's the easy default entertainment if, you know, and for our kids, like I, I know my, my son who's 16, he needs one-on-one -on -one uh, you know, kind of to guide him. He's not self-driven or self-motivated. He sort of needs that outside brain to guide him through the day. Um, taking away the screen, you know, I, I do have to do a little bit more interaction and he is a support person now, but the default, the screen was just sort of the default to keep, you know, it just, that was his only thing to do. But now he is having more social interaction, more interests that he didn't have before, and uh, the game changer really was decreasing that screen time. Yeah, it's amazing how fast, if you make these changes, 
I think you will see improvement, but it's amazing how fast, if it goes back to excessive screen time use, how fast those problematic responses or behavioral patterns come back. I know it in myself too. My wife and I decided to do like a technology detox several months ago for like a month. We felt better. We, we got better sleep. We had more energy and we, we didn't stick to that a hundred percent of the time, but the nights were staying up watching TV right before bed. We're not sleeping as deep. And I can't imagine if someone is doing that every single night, it really can erode, I think, their physical and emotional and behavioral health. So it really is a threat to our health and well-being. Yeah, and I even see for myself, sometimes I have a stack of books by my bed that I want to plow through. I want to get through those books. Um, however, if I go to bed and grab my phone and decide, well, let me first just check social media let me just check this. Let me read the news headlines because I didn't catch any news today. After a while, an hour has gone by and I kind of don't feel like reading a book now because I'm sort of absorbed into, you know, whatever was going on on my device. And then the next morning I feel like, I, you know, I'm not, I really should be reading my books and not going to bed myself on, on my device. So even I think we as parents, adults need to even be more self-disciplined in, in what we're doing on the screen because we're also setting that example for our kids. I can't agree more. So I've talked a lot about internet addiction. Probably want to be aware of the term internet gaming disorder, which is actually in the DSM-5 in the back of the book under conditions for further study. There's something called problematic smartphone use. You're, you'll find a ton of research that talks about smartphone use addiction. Many of the things I spoke about are going to apply to these things too. But there is some evidence too, where if you're sitting and looking at your screen or your smartphone for extended periods of time, that can contribute to muscular skeletal discomfort. And for kids that have some neurodevelopmental disorders, that pain in their body, they may not be able to verbalize that to the caregiver and connect the dots so that Physical pain often can come out as irritability or rage or just complete defiance. And then we can't forget about vision problems too. If you're looking at that screen all the time, there is evidence too to support the fact that that can contribute to increases in vision-related kind of problems like eye fatigue or dryness in the eyes that can cause eye discomfort, headaches. So making sure staying in contact with the healthcare provider, eye doctors, all of those things. But we can't forget too about like cyber victimization, cyber bullying. I think we're doing one in the series on bullying and teasing, if I remember right. But if not, possibly, yeah. <laughs> but remember that term I said alexithymia early. Yeah. On there is evidence to support the fact that alexithymia is a potential risk factor for someone being the victim of like cyberbullying. Why why might that be the case? Dr. Jared, can you define alexithymia again for us? You may have done it on another episode, but I want to make sure because it's a newer term, not everybody may not that it's a new term, but it's a newer term to some of us and we might not be familiar with what it is. You bet. So it's not a disorder, it's more of a personality construct where the person has emotional unawareness. And it can contribute to like social attachment problems, issues with relating to people interpersonally. And the person is going to have a difficult time identifying 
and distinguishing like body sensations from actually how they feel like anger, depression. Alexithymia has been shown to limit one's imagination and they often think very concretely and externally. So they might have a hard time going inward. So alexithymia is a huge topic. Most people have never even heard of it. I give lots of talks on this to lots of professional audiences and most of them have never even heard of this. Half of people with autism have alexithymia, the research says. Very high percentage of people with extensive trauma histories have this. 50 to 60% of people with drug or alcohol problems have this. We all have this probably on some level at some time. Burnout has been linked to this as well. It's a topic I highly recommend you learn about because once you learn about this, it'll really change your lens on how you view someone when they may come off as cold or numb or callous, or they just seem like they're so disconnected. Could there be something else going on? And what, what, what will happen here in some cases, if someone has true alexithymia, you as a caregiver might see the child in complete disarray, discomfort, and you ask them, how are you feeling? And they can't put that those words into actions, but they may say, I'm feeling tense. I feel warm. My head hurts. My back hurts. My stomach hurts. My throat hurts. It comes out a lot as somatic body-based symptoms. And it's not unusual for some chronic cases where the person might think they're having a panic attack or a heart attack and go to the hospital. The hospital can't find anything wrong with them. It's they really struggle with like emotional processing and awareness. That's a quick snapshot overview, huge topic, a lot more to it than that, but it, 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 you're going to see it frequently, especially in people with extensive trauma histories. Yeah, I think that is one of our upcoming topics that we're going to devote an entire episode to because I, I find it to be in, very interesting. And I feel like with, I know with my own kids with FASD, um, I, I feel like I may be seeing this. Um, and, and of course my kids all have trauma. So uh, this is something I think we need to learn more about. So we're definitely going to cover that, um, in a future episode. I did, um, I made one little note when you mentioned, um, the, the muscular skeletal discomfort. Is that what you called that? Yeah. Um, yeah. One of my, one of my, one of my sons who had severe, uh, scoliosis, multiple surgeries, rods in his back and all of that, um, when he was in ninth, 10th grade, he started complaining of a lot of, a lot of neck pain. Uh, and his teacher, even he's in an adaptive class. He wasn't an adaptive class. Um, they got him an elevated desk. Of course, he's now looking down more cause he's sitting at a desk, um, you know, looking at a, a screen at school a little bit, but, um, I started realizing, well, he's on his phone all the time. So his neck is right. They're always looking down at their screen. I started calling it tech neck, which was maybe a term I heard somewhere else. But um, neck pain, I think he was just, you know, really aggravating problems that he was already having because his head was always bent over looking at a screen. Yeah, that is a huge factor. We all need to be aware of. Yeah, that's a perfect example for sure. So you bring up FASD and, a few times or go ahead. Sam. Yes. No, no, please go ahead. Not a lot of empirical based scientific research on FASD and screen time. But almost every caregiver that I talk to that has a child with FASD or an adult and every 
almost every professional I talk to who works with people that BSD say that this is an issue for almost every person they work with. Let's look at the autism literature. There's quite a bit of literature on autism and screen time. I think we can pull from that literature and learn and how to apply it to FASD. It's not going to be exact, but a lot of similarities. In the autism literature, it really talks about screen time misuse as almost acting like a stimulant. Be you mentioned a little bit about, I think your daughter maybe really attracted to the, maybe the technology and it, that sensory component where looking at visual graphics or seeing things move or getting that immediate feedback or exposure to like endless content. That's exciting. That's, that's fun. That's stimulating. That, that's one thing this literature says to be aware of. Another thing it says is it can suppress melatonin again, and it can really have a negative impact on sleep. The overwhelming majority of kids in general who have neurodevelopmental disorders, as well as trauma histories are gonna have sleep problems. This is just an accelerant. And it's also been linked to increases in low-grade inflammation in our body. Chronic low-grade inflammation is a driver of most diseases and disorders. Being aware of that, it just, it changes my life. I do a lot of work in the area of psychoneuroimmunology and it, that literature really looks at inflammation in the body. And getting inflammation down is a good thing. I can give some tips on just basic tips. This literature too with the autism and screen time shows that it can exacerbate executive functioning problems. So it can exacerbate abstract reasoning, working memory problems, inhibition, cognitive flexibility, and information processing speed abilities. We know kids with FASD in general have all those. It's just gonna make it a little worse. And then the social communication deficits. It may, we know people with autism struggle with social communication and sometimes impaired eye contact abilities. It's been shown to increase problems with being able to make eye contact effectively with people because if someone's always glued to the screen, if they don't have a lot of opportunity to engage with people firsthand and like look at them and greet them and know how to just carry on a conversation, obviously those skills will be stunted if a good portion of their life early on, they've been glued to the screen. So really be aware of this. And it's been shown to lower one's empathy. So just the very nature of being on the screen for extended periods of time, depending on what you watch, has been shown to impact empathetic responses as well. What about, I'm thinking of, of kids who are very much into the internet gaming, and there's a lot of violent games out there. So kids that already have, you know, trauma, um, adverse childhood experience, whether they have autism or an FASD, how would you know, prolonged video gaming, especially with violent video games, how would that affect them? I don't know what good purpose it serves to have kids play violent video games, in my opinion. There's so much literature that right. talks about it. There's there's mixed results. There's controversy. Like if a child plays video games, are they going to grow up to be violent? The overwhelming majority of cases, no. But it still can have a negative impact on how they perceive the world, how they view the world. It can create anxiety in them. I mean, it throws off their sleep. And if you're throwing things in there where you're 
harming other people. And it's just not good for a developing brain to see those things. Obviously, common sense tells us don't allow kids to play violent video games. Now, video games in general, not a bad thing. I love video games growing up, but it's having some fences, some boundaries, some parameters to it where it's not hours and hours and hours a day. And setting timers, too. I hear this all the time. You lose track of time. All right, you have 10 minutes left, and an hour goes by. you got to hold the line. Maybe it's a digital timer. Teaching kids how to use time appropriately. Because sometimes being on that screen can really rob people of their ability to kind of tell time and feel what time really is. Yeah, and I've also, I have read that uh, app developers, video game developers intentionally program in there uh, ways to keep people and kids engaged. Um, I think it may have something to do with increasing their cortisol level. So basically, you don't want to put it down. It kind of feeds the addiction on purpose to keep people playing, to keep people online. Uh, so, And oftentimes when we want our kids like, okay, it's time to turn it off, and they have a meltdown, uh, you know, they get aggravated, they, you know, irritable, they're grumpy, um, you know, the meltdown happens. Um, oftentimes, it's because they're having a hard time transitioning, because they were, you know, whatever, whatever brain chemical, I'm not sure if cortisol is right, but whatever was going on in the brain, they're literally having a hard time shutting that down. I like dopamine and dopamine. Yeah. That's the word. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely without a doubt. And before I move into some positives interventions, can I just share briefly about what the research says about allowing technology in your child's bedroom? Yes, please. So most, a lot of parents do this. I don't think they're intentionally trying to do any harm, but the research leans to the fact that kids who have technology in their bedroom, especially when it goes unchecked, are at greater risk for sleep problems, motivational deficits, problems with transitions. So being able to stop, put down the computer, come down for lunch, come down for dinner, hey, we have to go in 10 minutes. It's been shown to increase obesity. It's been linked to increases in substance misuse as that kid gets older. Earlier initiation or exposure to sexual content it's been shown to negatively impact creativity and problem solving, increase irritability, self-regulation issues, isolation, and social skills, to name a few. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. All, it seems like, you know, really straight across the board, all of these negative impacts um, are right at the fingertips of our kids. If, and if we're not diligent and careful they could that sometimes I think that becomes the babysitter, right? Guilty myself. Like yeah. if I could just have 30 minutes of peace and quiet, you can, you know, go sit on your device. I and, agree. You know, we're all and an guilty. hour later. Yes, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> an hour later, I'm still trying to finish what I was doing and my kid is still on the device. So, um, but this just really opens our eyes. I know it opens my eyes to the need that this is, this is really dangerous and unhealthy all the way around for our kids physically, emotionally, mentally, um, and we really, really need to be on top of it. So uh, every parent, right, not just foster and adoptive and kinship caregivers, but all kids, 
Um, but our kids are especially at risk. So Jared, what are some of the interventions and strategies that we can implement that will help our kids reduce screen time, reduce some of these, uh, you know, neg- this negative impact? Be aware of the research on the topic and then really understanding the risk factors, the emotional, behavioral, family, temperament, personality trait, risk factors that we spoke about, really having that as a good grounding. And then I think it's important to really rule out any comorbidities. So if the person's dealing with untreated mental health issues or sleep issues or anxiety or whatever it is, treat that. So working with providers who understand these topics, kind of work at it from a multidisciplinary lens, multifactorial, and then moving into just setting boundaries, setting fences, parameters. What what are the rules of the house? Obviously, we don't want to come off so, so rigid. The child can't ever be on technology, but you got to find out what works best for your family, obviously, and as much as possible, model that behavior. So parental modeling, just my own humble advice, get technology away from mealtime. When you're in the car, don't text and drive. Don't, the child is witnessing those things. I can't count how many stories I've talked about with that. Focusing on skill enhancement for that child, as well as the the caregivers as well. So there's something called like media literacy enhancement, just really understanding that topic and focusing on building psychological and social skills. So where would we start with that? Self-management skills, maybe teaching self-control, self-regulation. Maybe it's working with an executive functioning coach. Focusing on improving social skill development. So if that child's dealing with a lot of loneliness or friendship making issues or is dealing with a lot of bullying and teasing, those are huge barriers that need to be addressed and identified. And I really think doing it through a trauma-informed lens to help ensure that that child feels heard, valued, respected, known, validated, getting them connected to positive support groups, maybe. Maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a mentor. Maybe it's something maybe in the realm of social learning where basically that child is in another group with other kids and they're learning together, peer learning, getting the child outside more, really finding and honing in on their strengths and their qualities and their attributes that are outside of just being online getting them to really think that there's a whole nother world out there, possibilities. Being aware, just being around animals can be very helpful. Gardening, music, art, whatever it is, those are some really, really good things to take into account. I would also be aware of a topic called therapeutic lifestyle changes. I give talks on like integrated behavioral health. I think this is where other providers may come in, really really looking at Nutritional deficiencies, I always say this, talk to a nutritionist. I think nutrition plays a huge role in our mental and emotional health as well as our physical health. If we're dealing with some obesity-related problems, a child's dealing is overweight, really focusing on some weight management techniques, working with a specialist around that. Ruling out a sleep disorder, improving sleep, sleep hygiene practices, exercise is always helpful, 
maybe the child has mobility issues working with some sort of professional who understands that maybe it's like heated pool therapy or something that you can still get movement and at the core of that really limiting screen time not getting rid of it completely but really again you mentioned kind of the digital health just digital detox just really promoting healthy screen time habits education modeling learning about parental controls and privacy settings kids are very good about staying up on that and finding loopholes so really trying to maybe join a support group and talking to other family members or professionals who understand these topics to learn about all of the intricacies of this. I think teach limit setting can be very helpful. Teach time management. These, I would say those really fall in the umbrella of executive function. Teaching the child to reduce multitasking. There is some research that's come out that if kids go online and they're playing games and doing all those things online, it may increase their processing speed, but it decreases their accuracy. So they may be able to think quicker, but they're more likely now to make mistakes. So a lot of kids may go online, play their games on their phone at the same time. Multitasking is not a good thing for the brain. Set some gadget-free time during the day, like a, just a brain break even away from anything, just teaching that child and modeling silence and just sitting still is not a bad thing. A lot of kids with FASD I hear over and over again, struggle with boredom and silence and having nothing to do. That is a true sign of a self-regulation deficit. Boredom and self-regulation, though, if, you if you're someone that really struggles with boredom that, and you can't manage that, that is a self-regulation deficit. Promoting more green space or blue space. So getting out in nature, parks, walking, being around rivers, oceans, lakes, those kind of things. And trying to really promote active play rather than sedentary kind of play behaviors as well. So just getting moving are just a, a, a few things that, I, that come to my mind, Sandra. Yeah, I know when you were talking about um, setting parental controls, you mentioned that one and learning about them. Um, that is our responsibility as a parent to know how to set those controls on all of our kids' devices. And I just had a little eye-opening experience the other night because I was up reading late, not on a device, but actually in a book, <laughs> and um, just thought, you know, I think somebody's up in the living room. Uh, and I realize that our smart TV can access YouTube. And although I've, I've limited that down, I think you and I were talking before we started, I discovered that YouTube, I, I tried to take that off of my kids' devices because they, if they can access YouTube, they can essentially access porn. And I have kids that love to learn all kinds of different things, good things, and watch videos on YouTube, but if it's in the bedroom or if it's at night and it's unsupervised, they're going to find porn super easy. And, uh, you know, I happened to tiptoe out and discovered that thankfully he wasn't watching porn, but he had figured out how to go on YouTube through our television. So here I eliminated it from the devices uh, by setting like a 30 second screen time because I couldn't actually delete it off of our devices 
I had to set the screen time way down to 30 seconds, so it wasn't even worth it for them to go on there. But then they figured out how to get it on the TV in the middle of the night when I'm sleeping or they thought I was sleeping. So you have to be on top of it and pay attention and know um, really what's going on. Uh, that was that was eye opening to me. So, Jarrett, um, I've seen improvements in my boys attitudes and sleep patterns and social interactions by limiting the screen time at our house and really trying to stay on top of it. Uh, and I know, um, can we can we reverse the negative impacts that have already occurred from excessive amount of screen times? Is it, is it too late? You know, are we are we going to I mean, obviously, if we if we limit it now, we can prevent more problems in the future. But is there a way to reverse anything that's already been going on? Oh, absolutely. I, I do think so. Just for me personally, I mean, taking one night off the screen, I feel completely different. Yes, it makes a huge difference. Now, if we're talking about a child that's been exposed to drugs and alcohol in utero, it's tough to obviously reverse the core core deficits caused to the brain by drug and alcohol problems, but we can support, manage, and make things better. And one thing we can do to help improve functioning is limit screen time and helping engage the other senses and just really utilizing an integrative behavioral approach, nutrition, exercise, sleep, talk therapy, being around positive support network. It's usually not just one thing, but a, a piece of this puzzle again is understanding how screen time could amplify some of the secondary issues that we know are all too common for people with FASD or some of these other types of neurodevelopmental disorders. And we know we're looking at this through a trauma lens. Trauma can exacerbate this. So if someone's dealing with untreated trauma, really working with a professional who understands attachment and trauma-based approaches through a neurodevelopmental disorder lens, very helpful, very recommended. And finding people too that understand the intricacies and interconnectedness of how excessive screen time use, again, can be an amplifier for a lot of these things we're talking about. Yeah, goodness. So. I know as we wrap up, because there's just been so much good stuff that you're talking about and so many things that we can do. And again, I've got notes and notes and notes here. Um, but and it can seem overwhelming to parents who are thinking, I'm never going to be able to reduce screen time. My kids will just, you know, they're not going to have it. It's going to be horrible. I'm not going to be able to put up with all of the, you know, the, the, the kickback that I'm going to get if I try to, the meltdowns and just all of the, the angry outbursts if I try to take screen time away or reduce it. But we've seen today that it's vital to do that. It's imperative that we do that. And, and although initially it may be met with much resistance over time and it doesn't really take very long, you're going to see improvements in mood and behavior and attitude um, so it, it's definitely worth it because everything is just made worse, really, by by the screen time. So as we wrap up, Jarrett, uh, you gave us so many examples, but what would be your top three practical things we can do as parents today to begin reducing screen time? The parents in the household talk, come to a shared agreement on what the plan is, what the rules are, the boundaries, the fences around screen time and inconsistency. We know kids with these disabilities 
do best with consistency and predictability and instead of one parent saying one thing the other parent saying something different that can be very confusing and crazy making i think if appropriate for your family finding a consultant a coach who understands this topic who can work with the family who can give some tools and resources and skills or maybe you're already working with a number of different professionals finding a consultant who can teach the entire group how to infuse some technology screen time reduction strategies into the goal plan or treatment plan or intervention plan and i i would join a support group with other parents knowing you're not alone because the, again depending on the the child and the type of disorder there might not be a lot of empirical based evidence out there but finding out from other people who've lived this learn from their lived experiences and it's a good way for you to vent it's a good way to learn new strategies it's a good way for you to share with others what has worked and what hasn't and sandra we should write a book on this sometime together <laughs> oh i would love to i think it's definitely a um you know, I, I, I just, I, like I said, I'm, you know, I confess I had my head in the sand. Like, I'm like, oh, we have restrictions. You know, it's fine. They can't access porn. But I really had no idea that, first of all, they can. If your kid has, um, you know, access to YouTube, uh, even if you have on there, like a, 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 we had a filter on to where our kids could not, you know, do a internet search. They couldn't find porn on the web, but they could access it through Instagram, they could access it through YouTube. Um, and then there's another one, um, Snapchat. Snapchat is horrible. Um, and, and TikTok is horrible. So all of these things are just are really enemies of our kids, really taking our kids down. So um, the, the more I have learned, I'm, I, I realized my head really was in the sand, even though I didn't want it to be. I thought I had things set up. Um, but really, um, you know, Taking it out of their bedrooms, game changer. You know, that made the world of difference. Um, and screen time restrictions, actually going into their devices. And it's not easy. I have an 18-year-old, soon to be 19-year-old. He's not really happy about it, but he's his he's definitely, his behavior and a lot of things have improved since we started doing this, uh, you know, probably, I have to say, four months ago. Uh, I think it was maybe around April or May when we really began to change what we were doing. And um, it's definitely made a huge improvement. And I know we can do even better. Um, but, you know, that's that is something that we have to be careful of. But, but even if you have a teenager who's older, they have a cell phone, you know, you have to know their password, you have to be able to access it, you know, and, and check it like I do checks all the time. And that's where I discovered some of the stuff that I did discover and my eyes were open to what was really going on. So um, it is so important, so important. So um, Dr. Brown, again, I just, you provided so much vital information and uh, like, this is, this is such an important topic that I do think that we need to continue the conversation with it, but I appreciate all of your uh, expertise and, and providing the case studies and, and talking about the research because we need to know these things to keep our kids safe. So I appreciate that. And I'm looking forward to our next, next week, we're going to be um, taking a deep dive, I believe into fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and 
adverse childhood experiences, the connection between the two. I believe that's what we're going to be talking about next week. Yes. So I look yeah. forward so to I'm, it. Yeah, same here. So thank you again so much for sharing your expertise with us today. You're welcome. And thank you. And feel free to share my email with your audience if questions arise. We will put it in the show notes for sure. Thank you. You're welcome. Wow. Thank you for joining us today for this special series with Dr. Jared Brown. If you like to learn more about the adverse impact of screen time, I would recommend the book Digital Detox by Molly DeFrank. She happens to also be a foster and adoptive mom. Uh, the book is not about that, but she that she is an adoptive mom. Um, and uh, I just learned so much from her book also. Uh, I will include a link in the show notes for this episode to both the book and also to Dr. Jared Brown's email. So if you want to ask him questions directly, you can do that as well. And I hope you've been enjoying this special series on FASD, Adverse Childhood Experiences and Trauma. Remember, our regular episodes drop on Mondays, so be sure to catch those along with these bonus episodes that we're thrilled to bring you. Um, and you can reach out to me if you have questions also. Uh, like I mentioned at the top, uh, if you would like uh, to ask a question to Dr. Brown, you can email him directly or email me. Um, if you have any comments or anything else you'd like to contact me about, my email address is sandraflackjfo at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, be sure to let us know by subscribing and let your fellow adoptive and foster parenting friends know so that they can listen to the show and be encouraged and equipped too. Some reminders, September, right around the corner, believe it or not, is International FASD Awareness Month. And we've got lots of FASD stuff going on. JFO, my nonprofit, is now an FASD United affiliate. That means we are one of just two organizations in New York State to contact for FASD resources, supports, and advocacy. We are also offering an FASD 101 training online or in person. It's a 90-minute workshop about FASD for parents. Uh, and uh, in the coming months, we will be adding several more different uh, versions of the FASD training as I become a FACETS uh, facilitator of the FACETS Neural Behavioral Model. We will be offering a variety of different workshops for both parents and professionals. Uh, you can learn more about the trainings and sign up um, at justicefororphansny.org. You would um, look at the top at the tab that says training and then the drop down menu, you can click on the one that says FASD uh, and you'll find those there. Also, we are a platinum sponsor for FASD United's Run FASD. It's a virtual 5K. You can run walk or roll anywhere, anytime during the month of September. We are also hosting a local 5K here in upstate New York. To learn more and to register for the, you can, you can officially register where you get some bling, a t-shirt, a medal, all those wonderful things. Um, you would register at runfasd.org. Uh, and I'd love for you to come out and join us for that. Um, you get to meet myself, 
Uh, Rebecca Tallou, who is an adult with FASD. Uh, the run is something that was uh, she was inspired to create last year. Um, so we're, we're going to be out there. Some of my kids will be with me. Um, so if you're local, if you are a local listener to the upstate New York area, please come on out. We will be meeting on September 10th, which is a Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m., at the Voorheesville Rail Trail. It's in Voorheesville, New York. Um, and if you want to learn more about that, you can also go to our website, justicefororphansny.org. And coming up, our hope for the FASD journey community. I am super excited about this. And Dr. Jared Brown kind of you know mentioned here at the end of his interview about the importance of parents to have a support network and a group and other parents who get it. Well, myself and Natalie Vecchione, who is the host of FASD Hope podcast, we get it. And we are collaborating together to bring you Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for us caregivers raising individuals with FASD whether they've been diagnosed or not. Um, but if you're suspecting that's what you're dealing with, you definitely know you're dealing with trauma. Um, you can join us. This faith-based community will include an online bi-monthly support group. So twice a month, we're going to be meeting on Tuesday evenings via Zoom. Uh, also, once a month, we're going to be doing a VIP conversation where we're going to interview special guests um, adults who've had, who have FASD and others in the, in this field where you can kind of hear from them, but also ask them questions, uh, uh, right there online. So we're going to be doing that. We're going to have a private Facebook group, which will include, um, every Saturday, Natalie and I are going to be taking turns and bringing a, a, a devotional. Um, so if you are a person of faith and you would like some uh, inspiration just for this journey to kind of hang in there and keep going, uh, we're going to be encouraging you with a weekly devotional. Uh, so for, for more details or to join the community, you can visit our website. Again, that's justicefororphansny.org. Top of the page, you're going to click on the training tab. And then when it drops down, you'll click on FASD. There you'll find our workshops, you'll find our other resources that we recommend, but also the hope for the FASD journey community. And you can join the community right there. Um, also, just want to give a shout out to my book, um, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father. It is available wherever you get your books. Uh, you, if you grab it from Amazon, you can get the Kindle version, you can get a soft cover version, please go on in there and leave a review. I'd greatly appreciate that. If you would like a signed copy, signed by yours truly with a free gift bookmark in there, you can visit my personal website, sandraflack.com. Uh, so you can, you can do that if you're interested in grabbing a copy that way. Uh, always like to give a shout out to some businesses that support our nonprofit that help us do what we do um, because they care about kids. And that would be Tri Nuclear Corporation, Bishop Boudry Construction, National Bank of Koksaki, and Coleman Insurance Agency. Appreciate those guys very much. You can find and follow Justice for Orphans on both Facebook and Instagram. And you can find and follow me, Sandra Flack, there as well. Would love to connect with you there. I am grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I am thrilled to have you along for this journey. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.